0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: If you think about, say, the 1960s, there were lots of options of hope. There were still Marxist options of hope. The flower power, hippie version of love and peace, there were speeches given about this is the type of society that we want. We just don't really have that in our world at the moment. To be human means to long for that which
2: goes beyond the human.
1: Beyond a certain limit, they stop being good. It's a picture
2: of grief. I can't be absolutely dogmatically certain about anything.
0: Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart.
2: And I'm Justine Toh.
0: We've just had CPX's annual Richard Johnson lecture with clinical psychologist and HOPE researcher Lisa Aitken talking about, unsurprisingly, HOPE. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a great night and she dived deep into this topic that really feels especially timely right now. When things in the world seem a little bit more out of control than usual, we've had people like the UN Secretary General expressing his fears that the world is becoming unhinged, for instance.
2: Yes. And do you remember last year, the Collins Dictionary, word of the year was (laughs) perma-crisis, this state of ongoing terrible things happening all the time? I think that feels quite spot on for this year as well. But I think all this language, right, it's unhinged, the world is unhinged, or we live in these times of perma-crisis. I think this really speaks to a crisis. of hope that we feel. It's a sense of disappointed expectations. We expect things to have turned out for the better, but we at the moment are having a lot of trouble trusting that they will turn out better. And (laughs) I feel that myself.
0: Yeah. Justin, you read this. There was an article a few weeks back in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age written by a self-described sunny nihilist, Wendy Seyfried. yeah, now, In this article, which we all kind of read, about, yep. <laughs> trying to make sense of this, um, she acknowledges that nihilism has a grim reputation, that everything that gives us purpose, she talked about here, whether religion, politics, tradition, the family, are, in these estimations, all ultimately meaningless. So there's no meaning, no purpose that's real. But she and Plenty of other, apparently, Gen Zs, have found they can cope with that by focusing on what makes them and each other happy, and not concerning themselves with any kind of bigger picture. Now, as one person told her, this is a quote from the article, I find nihilism comforting. Life has no inherent meaning, so I'll just do what I want and maybe find some meaning myself. Now, I don't think I was alone in finding this article a bit alarming and rather hopeless and possibly a bit naive, but it also makes sense from her perspective, I guess. Hmm. Environmental concerns, lack of leadership by governments, things that seem increasingly out of control. So the future to her generation, especially it seems, feels grim. And uh, Justine, it was all a bit troubling.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's badging it as sunny nihilism and that's good because it's kind of like, what What What's she talking about? That seems like a contradiction in terms. It doesn't sound very sunny to me, actually. And I do wonder, I mean, the article that we saw didn't go there, but I wonder how this sunny nihilism tracks alongside reports of poor mental health um, among this generation as well. And I'd want more detail as to what does it then look like? Does it end up with, you know, people just having to find things to distract themselves. So they're not going to be staring into the void of meaninglessness. I mean, she kind of mentioned in the article that it's a little bit about caring less, but it's like, do we really, like, I get that. I get not caring so much about your job, right? Your dead end job. But what about when it comes to relationships? I mean, she was giving off the impression that it doesn't mean that she doesn't invest in people, but I just wonder if things are kind of at cross purposes here. So when I read this, I was just like, look, I hear you, you feel like things are rather grim. And I think that ultimately it's a vote of non-confidence in the future, which yeah. I think is really sad.
0: Yeah, and in that sense, there's a lot more we could say about yeah. about this. But that article had some crossover with our episode today. So we're, we're looking at how individuals might cope in the face of an increasingly chaotic, some would say unhinged world. And it's worth saying that we know that we need a broad collective effort to address the world of disorder that we see. But that's not our focus today in this episode. Here we're talking about the response of the individual in the midst of all of this. And this is what Lisa Aitken addressed in her Richard Johnson lecture. Now if you couldn't make it to that lecture, we are going to be releasing Lisa's talk in full on the Richard Johnson lecture podcast soon, so keep an eye out for that. But in the meantime, Justine caught up with Lisa to ask her about hope. Now, Lisa, just a reminder, is a clinical psychologist. So the conversation starts at this point, the hope that we place in psychology more generally.
2: I've heard our age described as a therapeutic one. Mm. And I think what is meant by that is that people might have once gone to confession to bear their souls. Now they're more likely to go see a psychologist. And interestingly, both involve a kind of talking cure, a way to unburden yourself. Hmm. Have you ever thought about that relationship? Is there some overlap between these two related, although very different kind of spheres, psychology on the one hand and religion on the other?
1: Oh, there's definitely an overlap, I guess, in the sense that people go to a therapist when they're struggling by definition, and often people would go to their priest or pastor when they're struggling to talk through A good psychologist, I guess, will not give advice per se, but do a good job in asking questions and help people uncover what they need to do. And I think a good psychologist will also explore the spiritual nature of what it means to be a person and have a holistic sense I have a waiting list. Like, there is definitely <laughs> a great need for people. People want to come to someone who's outside of their emotional system, who's not caught you know, within their family or within their workplace and talk through what their options are. And I guess there's a sense in which a priest or pastor is also sometimes outside of that and can function like that.
2: You know, you just said that as a psychologist, you're not necessarily there to give advice or to give answers. But mm. I think um, we kind of do want to
1: go <laughs> to our psychologist for I answers. Know. No pressure, yeah, right? I spend my days saying to people, "It's not my job to tell you what to do." <laughs> but that's not to say that there's not wisdom that can be imparted, just from life experience, but also from psychological research. And as a Christian clinical psychologist. Happily, nearly all of the psychological research on how to lead a flourishing life, how to push through difficulties and struggles is incredibly consistent with what the Bible has to say. So it <laughs> makes it easy.
2: Let me um, put forward to you a scenario. Just say I am a prospective patient of yours and I have a problem with hope, as in I don't have any. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard you say that psychology is, is curiously silent on hope or doesn't have a lot to say, which I find interesting. Is that right?
1: Yes. The last probably 40 years, there has been a growing amount and in the last 10 years, a growing amount. But the problem was that back in the 1990s, psychology got stuck on a particular definition of hope and it just sort of stayed with it, even though I think it's a very poor and impoverished definition. And this was the idea that hope just has two aspects. One I've been good at achieving goals in the past, and two, I can problem solve my way to achieve my goals in the future. So this has just become the dominant view of hope, but it's very narrow and very individualistic. Unfortunately, also the educational research has used that definition because it's got a measurement scale. And as is the way in research, once one thing becomes the predominant piece, everyone wants to use that so they can compare their new research. So it developed this sort of big life of its own. Even though recently many psychologists, not just me, others have been saying this isn't good enough. We need it act- more than this. We need yeah. more. And it actually doesn't even correspond with how most people in the West use the word hope. So there's this whole other pool of psychological research, which asks, how does the typical Western, what do they mean by hope? What's the lay use or the everyday use? And it's much richer than that definition. So part of my own research and work has been integrating other strands within psychology, which aren't necessarily overtly about hope, some of them, but have something to say about the topic and integrating those with other disciplines.
2: Well, before we get into your research, can we establish what is hope? What do we mean by that word? I feel like we often use it in a sense of, I'm going to shut my eyes and just wish for the best. Mm. But is that what we're talking about? Or is it optimism? Or what, what exactly are we
1: talking about? There's a lot of research differentiating hope from other sort of anticipatory states of the future. So if I said, I hope to go to Pilates tomorrow, I can use the word hope, but it's actually a goal because I can just do it, it's not uncertain and it's totally in my power. So goals are like that. I could say, I hope the weather's fine. I really should say, I'm optimistic the weather is fine because optimism is just a sense that the future will be good, but there's no agency. There's no sort of action involved. Whereas if you hope for something, you will act to bring it about. Or I could say, I hope for dessert after dinner. (laughs) But this is actually just a wish or a want. I could say, I hope to be a unicorn. But this is a fantasy. Hopes have to be realistic. So there are constraints. And in fact, Aquinas, back in the 1200s actually listed the same ones that came out in the recent research on what's called grounded views of hope, just everyday views. So it has to be realistic. It has to be noble and important. Part of the problem why um, dessert isn't hope is it? it's too <laughs> trivial. So hopes for most people in the West, hope needs to be this noble, important, uncertain. You probably need other people's help to bring it about and you have to wait. So, yeah, there's these constraints about what is hope.
2: Tell me then, what's it like to launch into a doctoral thesis about hope, which is butting up against this um, psychological definition that's mostly me-centred. But you're thinking there's so much out there. And then it sounds like you're also trying to piece together mentions of hope or related themes for this particular topic of study.
1: That's right. So I did look at related psychological research, definitely. But I thought to myself, who has written most about hope? over the last two and a half thousand years, (laughs) and it's the disciplines of philosophy and theology. And the advantage of looking at them, A, there are some incredible intellects with deep insight, into the nature of the psychological experience of hope. If we think of Aquinas, who I just mentioned, it's like reading a contemporary psychologist to read Thomas Aquinas on hope. It's extraordinary. But others as well, all the way through, even in their different frameworks. So on the one hand, you've got profound insights. But secondly, how we use the word hope in the West is in a sense an accumulation of all of these great scholars. Because I'm talking about... Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, Kant, Kierkegaard, Descartes, Nietzsche. like These um, scholars that I ended up reading have been absolutely foundational in our worldview of the West. And it was really exciting. It was actually life-changing to mm. read all of these different philosophers and theologians. I'd never read most of them. I'd never read Nietzsche or Kierkegaard. Like the original, I tried to read for each of them everything they had to say about hope, not everything they had to say about everything, but everything they had to say about hope in its original text so that I'd really get my head inside their thinking and inside their understanding of hope. And what did you find? (laughs) Give give
2: us a taste of, of something.
1: Well, happily, there are lots of tables in my thesis (laughs) so I have these, I I go through all of these different great thinkers. I then go through all of the different ways hope has been looked at in psychology and also in psychiatry because the sort of neo-Freudian psychoanalysts have some really interesting things to say about hope. And from all of those tables, amazingly, there were themes which were common and that I could extract. And so I ended up thinking that hope is about four things. One of them is a mindset, the belief that the future has meaningful possibilities. Two are action pieces. So the second one is the idea that to hope you have to wait well, but be poised and ready to act to bring about your hope, because it might be you that brings it about. So I call that latent agency is the sort of psychological jargon. So that's the second one. The third one is also an agency piece, but I call this external agency in the sense that you might not be able to personally bring about your hope. You might have to hope in your surgeon or in your workplace team or in God or in governments for environmental issues, for example. So that idea that relationships of trust matter for hope. It's not just all about me or all about an individual. And the last one recognises that through the ages, hope has been seen as an emotion. It's a passion all through the Middle Ages and the Enlightenment. It's called a passion. It's got a strong emotional aspect. And the way that we feel the emotion of hope is when we can get a glimpse of what we hope for. We don't need the whole thing. The whole thing is in the future. (laughs) But to get a taste, whether it's in our mind's eye imagining it, whether it's something we see which just gives us that experience, These piggybacks on some recent neuroscience research about the power of imagining what we hope for and how intense that emotion is that we feel and how motivating it is for then to make us bring about our hope, which then fuels back into the action piece. They all actually float into and out of each other.
0: You're listening to Life and Faith, and we're hearing Justine's interview with psychologist and hope researcher Lisa Aitken, who just gave the Richard Johnson lecture for us here at CPX. Uh, Lisa has just gone through four aspects of hope that she found in her research so just to recap these one is a belief that the future is full of meaningful possibilities so the first one two the ability to wait well to cope in the waiting for what you want and being ready to act on what you hope for thirdly the ability to hope in others to trust that others are also doing their bit and then fourthly having eyes to see glimpses of what we hope for in the future, which helps to keep our hopes alive. But at this point, Justine, you said that each of these feels quite difficult now that we're in something of a hope crisis.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, that's the first thing that anyone... (laughs) going right? to say, right? Look, I think the headlines are terrible, right? We've just had this referendum that divided a nation, even though we're not going to talk about it now. There's war abroad, uh, or when rumors of war as well. Mm. The pandemic, I think, is not done with us quite yet. So I think there's a lot of reasons to feel hopeless right about now.
1: So, this is what Lisa had to say about that. That's the most common comment that I get from people when I say, oh, I've just finished a PhD on hope, is what a timely topic <laughs> that we needed. And the data is there. There was a huge piece of research from 2021 that looked at 10,000 respondents of young people across 10 countries. It was published in The Lancet. And 75% of them said the future is frightening. And something like, I think it was 69% said when they think about the future, they feel sad, angry and hopeless. So I think the data is there, that there is, especially in young people, a struggle with hope. And psychology isn't going to be able to help if our definition is, oh, just work on your own individual goal attainment. We need this bigger vision. And the beauty of having four angles that you can nurture to increase hope is there – this sounds really corny, but there's something there for everyone (laughs) (laughs) – that uh, whether it's working on a mindset, working on agency, working on coping well, working on having eyes to see the glimpses, it's very hopeful that hope is a multifaceted concept. And so there's many ways that we can nurture it and increase it. Am I right, though, in thinking that
2: hope is quite fragile or it's actually quite hard to do? Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, for example, I reckon I have quite a negative cast on things. You know, a psychologist once called it catastrophic thinking. <laughs> yes. um, so, you know, when I hear you say that it's about having eyes to see, I can see it as a practice, right? A determined practice. I'm going to put attention in this space to be that person. Definitely. But it's hard, right? It's and It's hard work. And it's, it's almost like trying to grab air, <laughs>
1: like yeah. you, how do yeah. you do it, you know? I guess that's part of why in this definition I'm trying to break it down into concrete mm. practical aspects. Like most psychological research on well-being, they all feed into each other. <laughs> so as you work for example to manage anxiety in that catastrophizing type thinking of worst-case scenario, thinking and calm yourself down so you enable yourself to have more visions of positive possibilities in the future. My children always groan when I say this, but I've raised them on this idea that we have to be salmon. We have to swim upstream. The force of the water is against us, but we need to be intentional if we want good things. And I agree, it can feel like swimming upstream to put effort into hope. By nature, I'm definitely a pessimist. I am not an optimist. Maybe that's why I'm really interested in hope. (laughs) So I have to be very intentional myself on working on hope.
2: Well, you have to, this is your brand now, so (laughs) you have to be on brand. Now, tell me about hope and the way we locate ourselves in time, because it seems to be a very future-oriented sort of thing, hope, Mm. right? Whereas I'm just thinking of all the the mindfulness stuff. I mean, mindfulness encourages you to stay present, be here right now. Mm. Whereas this hoping and this pulling us towards the future,
1: that's a different kind of orientation to time, isn't it? it is very different. And I say this as someone who practices mindfulness just as a stress management strategy. I don't want to uh, undermine the practice of it. It's a good thing. But it needs to have its place. There's research showing that to really have a meaningful sense of life, we need to reflect not only on the present, we can't always be in the present, just go moment to moment to moment. People who do that, that comes at a cost, and the cost is a sense of life's meaning. That to have a meaningful sense of life, we have to reflect on the past and be in the present and think about the future. Now, we can do that well or poorly. We can reflect on the past poorly and only think about hurts and traumas and negative things. Or we can say, well, yes, they're part of it, but also the past informs me what's important to me going to inform my hopes. We do need to be in the present sometimes, of course, but how we think about the future matters. So we could think about it poorly with catastrophizing or well and allow a whole lot of possibilities. Sure, we have to be realistic. Things could happen, but equally there could be positive and meaningful possibilities. So that span of time matters. And there is this, I found it fascinating. There's a research group, and they have a theory called pragmatic prospection. And this research group, which is Martin Seligman, who I'm sure many people have heard of and some others like Rob Baumeister, they are making a case that as humans, we think about the future a lot and how we think about the future is more powerful for us than what's happened to us in the past. That the future pulling us is more important than the past pushing us which is hopeful because we can't change our past, but how we think about our future is very powerful. And one of my favourite books on hope was by a Marxist, an atheist Marxist called Ernst Bloch. It's called The Principle of Hope. And he argues in that, that in terms of time and hope, that the present is the building blocks of the future. What we hope for can only ever be latent in the present. So he talks about the real possible emerges out of the not yet. <laughs> and he was at the University of Tobingen in Germany. And with him at that university was a Christian theologian called Jürgen Moltmann. Huh, and they had out. holiday <laughs> houses together really? somewhere. So interesting. And Maltmann, so the story goes, I hope I've got this right. I think it is. Maltmann uh, read this Marxist book and thought, oh, I wonder what an alternative view of time in terms of a Christian view of hope would be. And he said, actually, while the Marxist view is the present is marching forwards... In a Christian view, time is coming backwards because we have promises of God in the future and something new, something transformative. You know, Marx is waiting for the revolution mm. in the present. Maltman says, well, the revolution in one sense is going to come in the future. Time should pull backwards backwards and transform our present because we have an inkling of what is actually going to happen. So they're really different views of time. One is the present just marches forward. The other says that the forward pulls backward, but then pushes us to act in parallel with how we know God is going to act in the future. It's It almost ends up in a cyclical view. <laughs> so it's
2: interesting because it sounds as though the end, the way the story ends, or what ultimately will happen in the future. Mm-hmm. And if you f- view that future positively or that it it is a hopeful future then that can kind of become a little token that you bring with you into the present that can give you more hope. Am I like understanding that correctly? That's right.
1: You just need a glimpse of what you hope for but it matters what you need to have something in the future a big picture vision so that it can pull you towards it Mm. which is problematic in a very anxious society where for young people there is often a a narrative of decline around environmental anxiety and there's not really a big picture vision to pull towards in general society. So in my own research, I asked people what their best realistic hope for humanity was and for young people, it was that things don't get worse which doesn't actually have any content really (laughs) in terms of where you're pulling towards. And we need that. We seem to be designed and our brains are designed to need some sort of image of a future to motivate us for action. Mm. So where
2: can people find Hope. I mean, I, that sounds so pat, but like I mean it though, right? You you've just put forward to us a very sad and desperate situation, right? Mm. I think mental health of young people is at a crisis point, or is at a real. Is they're struggling, yep. And you're saying that their hopes for the future are, are nil. They just don't want it to get any worse than it is, right?
1: This is for the big picture hope for humanity. Oh, for Not humanity. to say Go. that an individual person. I'm sure young people have individual hopes for their lives, but all of our individual hopes for our lives are nestled within our hopes for the world and for humanity. The fact that fertility
2: seems to be kind of in decline around the world. It's not Mm. just, you know, in the Western countries. And I think someone has said that having children is a vote of faith in the future. Absolutely.
1: I certainly have clients who are in their 20s who are saying to me, I will not have children because look at the world. So the question is, where is the vision of hope, and it's a really good one because it's interesting if you think about, say, the 1960s. There were lots of options of hope. There were still Marxist options of hope. There were the flower power, hippie version of moving towards love and peace. There were speeches (laughs) given about this is the type of society that we want. We just don't really have that in our world at the moment. I'm not sure where. I I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian, and so for me the vision of hope is the Christian vision of hope, which includes the restoration of the whole environment, which includes the resurrection of our bodies, (laughs) of a restoration of each of us as humans. And there is a a clear vision. And it's interesting, if you read the Bible, you can see glimpses, fleshed out little glimpses of this hoped for (laughs) future time and time again. But Beyond that, I don't think there is a consistent narrative that our society has about what we're hoping for. Lisa, I've heard
2: that being religious or having a sense of spirituality, or even just this sense that we're one piece of a larger whole—that there's a bigger something out there—that that actually correlates positively with people's well-being and sense of hope. Is that also um, something that you've come across?
1: Absolutely, and. I already was aware of the huge amount of psychological literature correlating spirituality and general well-being and human flourishing that's very, very established. Spirituality is often divided into extrinsic and intrinsic spirituality. So if you're just forced to go somewhere, right. a, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, it doesn't matter what it is, then you know it doesn't necessarily correlate with well-being. But if it's part of your searching for the divine, for the transcendent, for connection with something bigger. And especially if you're finding a community of like-minded seekers, then absolutely it correlates with well-being and with hope. In my research, I found time and time again this correlation. So, for example, people who said their spirituality was very important to them were by far the most hopeful out of everyone. People who said, the number one thing I do to make myself feel more hopeful is pray, Again, this correlated the most strongly (laughs) with them having hope. So it certainly came out of there. The other important aspect is the link between hope and meaning. And meaning by definition is... You have to connect with something greater, some greater story, something outside of yourself, really, to have meaning as it's defined in psychology. And hope and meaning are very entwined, very highly correlated. So that initial definition of, oh, it's just about my goal attainment, Mm. just doesn't catch any of this, the connection with meaning, the connection with spirituality more broadly, let alone with with a, a Christian spirituality. And for me, I was thinking about this the other day. In a way, I started thinking about hope when I started my spiritual search, which was when I was 15. I wasn't raised in a family that had any particular religious framework. But my father passed away when I was 15 of lung cancer. And I remember literally looking at him on the day that he died and thinking, oh, my gosh, how do I make sense of the fact that I will die one day? Where is my hope? How do I have a meaningful life? How am I connecting with something bigger? And for me, this started a whole search for what spiritual framework I thought made the most sense of death. We had a commune of Hare Krishnas living next door, so my mum was freaking out that I was going to become a Hare Krishna. (laughs) But I ended up landing with Christianity as something which had this hope beyond death. And in a way, my thoughts about hope and hope needing to be about more than just this life, because if it's just about my goals for this life when I die, what does that mean? Whereas if there's a connection with something bigger, then there's a, the psychological jargon is a generativity, a sense that you've made a difference, that your life means something.
2: Just before you started telling us about your, your father's passing away You mentioned something that made me think of Viktor Frankl. Didn't he say, he who has a why can bear almost any how? And he was in the concentration camps and he was saying that, like, you know, so talk about desperate circumstances, things feeling terrible, but he seemed to have a sense of hope that there was something greater and something bigger and that actually gave him the resources to cope in the present.
1: Yes, his book Man's Search for Meaning is he strongly links finding meaning finding that why with your sense of hope absolutely so there's a sense that what
2: regardless if the concentration camp is your context or the 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 death of your father there is something here that's pulling at you and and saying, what is your life about? You know, What what do you really care about?
1: Yeah, and in both contexts, it is the context of death. Like whatever hope can't just be for tomorrow or for the next week or for the next years. Ultimately, human hope has to take death into account. You've given us
2: so much to think about and, and dwell on. Let me finish with one call to action, I suppose, on your part. What can we do today to be people of hope? Does that mean we've got to go out and change the world? You know, does that mean we've got to, I don't know, vote the right person in, or, you know, stop eating meat, or like, what? What do we need to do? Like, how can we be the kind of people that we need to be?
1: Um, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> There's multiple facets. We do need to manage our anxiety so that we can think about possibilities. We need to connect with what's meaningful, give ourselves permission to think about the big picture story of our life and where we would like it to go. It's easy to spend our lives just in distraction, but to actually think about some of these really big topics. We can surround ourselves with people who are going to help us bring about our hopes, and we can have eyes to see the glimpses of what we hope for. And more than that, To be the glimpses. The beauty of glimpses is we don't have to change everything in the world to bring hope about just a taste. For some reason, humans are designed that a taste is really powerful, just a glimpse. I think about my husband. He was passionate about social justice and about refugee work. And he started with no experience in this. He just wanted to help. And so he started a charity and he helped settle 10 families on the northern beaches with a model of getting churches to help them settle in and be involved. And I remember him saying, I can't solve the whole problem of refugees worldwide, but I can be a glimpse just for those 10 families of my bigger picture hope, which is for, you know, ultimate justice. And it didn't take over his whole life. It was something he did on the side and it's finished now. But he looks back and he says, yeah, that was a brilliant glimpse of justice. And I guess the call for us is, if glimpses are enough, what are you passionate about that you want to see in the future? What are you hoping for? And how do you enable yourself to be a glimpse for other people?
0: You've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Justine Toe.
2: Thanks so much to Lisa Aitken. Not only did she give a wonderful Richard Johnson lecture, but it's always nice to be in the room with a psychologist and you know, unburden yourself a little bit for professional reasons. So I've really appreciated that. I'm also going to post a link to the Sunny nihilism piece that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, as well as other Lisa Aitken links that you might like to check out. And also the link to her website, although... If you would like her to counsel you, unfortunately, she's not accepting more clients right now. But um, there's plenty of content there for you to find out about Lisa. So enjoy that.
0: Yes. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, why not share it with someone? Or since the Richard Johnson Lecture was sold out, maybe you missed out on tickets or you don't live in Sydney or Perth. In which case, we'll be releasing Lisa's talk on the Richard Johnson Lecture podcast very soon. And as always, thanks to our producer, the ever hopeful. Alan Douthwaite. Next week. I think one of the things that really struck home was the speed at which the information travelled. By the time I got back to base to report it to my commanding
2: officer, the president, Hamid Kaizai, knew about it. And it was a reminder of how
1: quickly information on the battlefield was being moved around.